Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic, here with Aaron Cameron at the, the end of the Western Canada Apartment Investment Conference. We are lucky enough to catch Shanur Jadavji right after her closing panel at the, the conference today. For anybody not familiar with her, she is the founder and president of Lotus Capital Corp, a Vancouver-based investment firm that's active in a number of markets. We're going to talk to her today about leadership and investment strategy. We'll probably cover, cover everything that we're... <laughs> you do have a strategy, right, uh, Shanur? Sometimes, Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Shanur has been with us before. We did uh, get a chance to speak with her at the Vancouver Real Estate Forum back in 2019, We've not connected since for the obvious reason that COVID grounded us, but we're happy to be back with her again. Shanur, welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So we did uh, last time, covered a little bit of your, of your background, but I think I'd like to revisit it because it's a very interesting story. My uh, recollection is Shanur had a piggy bank and she just kept putting money aside. <laughs> and then one day she just sort of got a hammer out, cracked the piggy bank. I was like, I'll buy an industrial building. Yeah. And that's the start of of Lotus. And the piggy bank was being a broker for about four years. And and just sort of sitting in my bedroom and having my little, probably, I think it was an iMac or whatever, Macintosh in those days. (laughs) And figuring it out. Yeah. So go from there, Shanor. Just take take us through, do a Coles notes of just your brokerage days through the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, let's just put that out there, of course. I mean, Shanor kind of embodies the concept of entrepreneurialism, that you're taking that risk when you were that young and now turning Lotus into sort of the large enterprise it is today. Well, thank you. That's a great compliment. I'm not quite sure how large we are, but we consider ourselves an, a boutique investment firm. But look, I started, I came out of uni, was supposed to go to law school, had a, an opportunity to work with Collier's, didn't want to actually go to my family office. I come from an East Indian background without getting into all the nuances and cultural nuances. I just didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So that, that's kind of how it all started. Brokered, saved a bunch of money, left, took a year off, traveled, had a passion for cooking, spent a bunch of time with different chefs in Vancouver and realized that I couldn't actually sustain my bad habits of living and uh, had to actually look at real estate again, which I had a great passion for. And did my first deal with a fellow that uh, owned an industrial building that, we, that I actually knew in North Vancouver. And his father had passed away and he was a pilot. He was sweeping the yard. There was a Collier's broker who knew him really well. And we put a deal together and I brought in external capital. And I had, you know, 5 or 10% of the deal. And we walked into 80,000 square feet with no leases and no operating budget. It was really exciting. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, 95. So you just seen the so, recent scars of real estate on the country and uh, thought this would be the, the time to jump in. That's well, old. You know, I like it. I, I learned about apartments and hotels in my family. Collier's taught me about all the asset classes. And I really liked the industrial part. It wasn't a day-to-day business, but actually what I did buy was a day-to-day business because I had to set it up. Create, create a rent roll. <laughs> yeah. yeah, go. Did the plan go off seamlessly with that first investment or uh, how did that the no, trajectory there? You're like in your mid-20s. What do you, what do you know? Yeah. Do you still there, own it? No, we actually sold it, I think about uh, seven years, seven or eight years back. Oh, so that's still a long cycle. It was a long cycle. Uh, uh, we had great tenants. 
We used to do an annual barbecue. Sarah McLaughlin used to store all her wonderful gear for Lollapalooza or whatever it was she used to do. So she would actually do like a set for us. No way. It was That's fun. Awesome. Like it was fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you sold it. I, like some people get emotional about it. No, no. I was very sentimental. Very sentimental about it. <laughs> but you had to sell. Well, I think we got to a point where uh, my partners on it were going in a different direction, getting older. They wanted to move on. And uh, it would have been great to keep it. But, uh, you know, it crystallized a lot of equity. And a, lo- a lot of what we do is about you know, repositioning assets, creating value, and then selling and taking that and taking it to the next level. I think only now, after 30 years, am I looking to build things for our balance sheet, which is a, a whole new sort of thesis. Well, that's a good place to start the real conversation. Why don't you just give the listeners a peek and decide the size and scope of your, your current operation? Where are you located? What kind of asset classes? You know, what size are you? Look, we're, we're very small. You know, we do probably three to four hundred million in turn every year, but that's kind of the, the asset size that we have. We have mostly partners, family offices, high net worth, and some institutions. We've scaled, we've come down. We, you know, we're morphing all the time, so we're incredibly nimble. And in order to be nimble, you can't have a very big shop. So you know, we've got twelve people, roughly, give or take, and that moves up and down. We'd love to hire more people. That's a different conversation because it's super challenging <laughs> right now. But we partner sometimes on, on our GP side. For instance, you know, all our development projects, we have a GC partner. They've been in the business for over 30 years. We've known them for that long. We have implicit trust in them. We are the development manager, they're the construction manager. In, in this environment, they are able to still do 20% better than anybody else on pricing for us. So we lean heavily on them, but they lean heavily on the other side to us. So it's a, it's, it's a great, you know, one plus one equals three. So what we've done is we've said, look, we're good at value add. We're good at apartments and repositioning. And we're good at industrial and repositioning. But when it comes to building, it takes a really big back office to do that. And it takes a lot of management and it takes a lot of years of relationships and, and, if you want good trades to be working on your projects, then you got to be somebody who has a name and, and has some, something at stake. And we're, we're not. We're not a merchant developer. So, you know, we've done the projects. We've partnered this way. We, we looked, when we look for a partner, we look for value alignment when they're on our side of the balance sheet. So we, we make sure that when everything looks good and the underlighting looks good, we're all good. But I actually want to know what happens if something goes wrong. And somebody who's sitting with me, or how are they going to behave? Are we going to be able to solve this problem together? You could come work as a lender because we think about downside all the time. This I is, think uh, about, yeah. I'm, the, I'm the negative person in our office. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned office. Like, let's, just, let's just talk about your organization. And it's a brand, obviously. And I know, Shanur, of course, you've been the founder and it's 30 years. And we were joking before we went live that People just almost say it's Shanur's building. Not it's not a Lotus yeah. building. But I mean, I, I'm sure you probably prefer to be called a Lotus building, not a Shanur building. And maybe just talk about the culture, the brand, the reputation, the values that you try to instill into your organization. So, you know, we are a team. Every person in our office has a voice. It's a very diversified team too. And, you know, 
we've spent a ton of time <laughs> trying to market ourselves and brand ourselves at Lotus. And I think we've got more work to do still. And I, I think it, it is happening. And I think it's just actually through basic age because I'm getting older and all the guys I know are older than me. So you guys don't know who I am. So it's okay. It's Lotus. <laughs> it's not a problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think it's happening naturally. But you know, the way our office works is nothing happens without a conversation and nothing gets bought without everybody working on it. So, you know, when we're underwriting, the asset management team is super important to our process. Like I want them in the buildings to go see them. I want to know what that CapEx is going to look like. I want to know how they're going to reposition it. You know, we have enough knowledge as it relates to the leasing part of it, but how are we going to nuance this? Because they've got to deliver it after that. And they're super important. So we don't work in vacuums. We work together. And there's constant conversation and chatter. And I'll kind of take you into COVID. It was problematic because COVID hit and we shut our office right away because we live in 2,100 square feet. Everyone's close. Everyone's talking to each other. Everybody's door is open. And all of a sudden, everyone had to go home. And we had to sit, set up people at home. And we had to find our bearings on how to work together because it was such a synergistic group that you're constantly talking and now you don't have that. And those ideas aren't formulating. And you can't look at deals the way we were looking at them. You can't even go see the deals. Forget, forget about it. So, you know, for us, it actually hit us really hard to the extent that, you know, larger organizations, there were more real estate trades done through COVID. And I would say to you, we didn't perform as well. And a part of that was because of how, you know, how we're set up. And so we focused on our existing assets, on securitizing our, our income streams and looking at our tenant profiles. And we were actually very focused on the asset management side. We worked on some deals, but it was, it was hard because for us, the kind of deals we were buying, we needed to see them. Beyond Google Street View, of yeah, course. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we probably didn't do as much, but we did get involved in some infill sites and that was fine. And, you know, getting through that process and we actually did some development deals. So COVID was, was tough. Uh, our team members who are younger, um, they couldn't handle being at home. You know, their space, Vancouver homes are small. Apartments are small. Um, you know, they couldn't see anybody. They, they couldn't go out. So... You know, by October of last year, we were the first to invest in those tests. We bought a gazillion of them and we were the, the team was testing three times a week. And we brought them in on a rotation basis. And then we actually got emails from team members saying, I can't do it. I need to come in. You need to let me take, come in. And, you know, I'll, I'll follow a protocol. Let's set up a protocol. And uh, people came back and, you know, one out of 12 people got COVID in the time they were in the office. So uh, I think there was really good respect in how people manage their personal lives. We have offered a tremendous amount of flexibility to our people and giving them the optionality of coming in or not. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're working our way around that because there's, there is certain teams that have to be together, you know, the accounting team and the investment team. But I would say to you at this point, I haven't seen my team work this hard and work as synergistically as they work. They're working currently. Yeah, I've uh, I've been to your office, and so yeah, I'm familiar with it. And 
I guess part of uh, having a lean team like you have is you, know, you could probably just stand up at your desk and speak loud enough and you know everybody's up <laughs> to speed what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, the, the, the pace of decision making would be would be very rapid. When, when your culture and your energy in your building or your energy in your company, the energy in your 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 office depends on those incidental conversations, the ability just to yell over the the wall or whatever, yeah. it's really it's impossible to replicate that in a working from home environment. And, and also breaking bread. Like we eat yeah. together. You know, we have a lot of that. And somebody's bringing in a treat or we're having lunch together yeah. or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of conversation and it's a very transparent team. That's one of our core values. And, you know, we're, we're invested in, in accurate reporting, transparency, delivering good news and bad news, and ensuring that the team feels confident in doing that, that they're not going to be judged or penalized. Or it is what it is. We've got to deal with it. And so it, it, there's a camaraderie, I think, that works. I, yeah. hope, I hope my team feels the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all listening to this going, what is she talking about? No, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> She's smoking something serious. <laughs> <laughs> let's, well, let's keep going on this same line of, of thought. Is You know, you mentioned ESG before we went live and just how important that is and integral that is sort of to the values you hold as an individual yourself. But I, I, I'm assuming you've intertwined that into your organization as well. And it maybe talk about the E, the S, or the G, or talked about them together. How, however, you want to parse that. Well, look. Um, why don't we talk about the E first? And and you know, we, you know that we own a lot of existing older rental stock in in Vancouver, and it's problematic. It's got asbestos. It's got mold. It's got all sorts of things. So we're really focused when we go in on the capex of creating livability. You know maybe installing some HEPA filters. But, you know, when we look at concrete buildings, we're looking at things like, you know, sprinkling and, and seismic and, and how do we make all of this work? So there's, there's this commitment to, you know, the windows and just, just creating livability in clean, fresh environments that you would probably get in a new place, but with more square footage and less rent. It's a really hard formula. Mm-hmm. It's getting harder to do. On the other side, we're so small that we can't have impact just from our footprint onto the environmental side. So what we did as one of our investment strategies is that we've started to invest in other organizations that are committed to the technology uh, needed to build better. And, and one of the companies that we've invested in is called Nexi, and they created an alternative concrete product that weighs one-tenth of concrete. It has almost a zero footprint on it. It, um, it. It's higher fire grading, higher flood rating, and it's seismic grading. And it's all been proven out. And the technology was like 10 years, it's actually 13 years old now. And it was brought to us about three or four years ago by a promoter. And we looked at it, we were the first, one of the first to actually you know, get on the bandwagon because it made a lot of sense. And it was proven. Unlike, you know, people call it a startup, but it's not a startup. It's been around already at that point for 10 years and it's proven and it's only getting better. So now we're able to build light paneling systems that are being utilized on buildings. We have got the CRU in place and we're doing all the New York Highway Authority buildings. And in combination, we're doing these strategic relationships with Siemens and Train and Honeywell, and they're all environment-based, right? And we're building charging stations with all these sort of comfort stations that the New York Highway Authority is getting us to build. 
And then, you know, we had that fire, I don't know if you remember last year, up in Lytton, BC. And 200 homes or plus were, were yeah, burnt destroyed. Down, destroyed. Yeah. People have been displaced entirely. So we got, we, we reached out and uh, built two sort of 700 square foot homes. It cost up 150 grand, if that. And they were gifted to Lytton. And I think that we are probably going to build a bunch of them for now and do some replacement stuff. We're working with the insurers. We're working with the feds. And so that's a big footprint that I couldn't, like Lotus could never do this on its own. But we have a conduit. We're supportive of it. I try to give it a pitch wherever I can. (laughs) Well, it is compelling too, because concrete is an environmental nightmare for the most part. Traditional concrete is, uh, you know, in in industry, you know, being a development that obviously leaves a big, big negative footprint, concrete is a huge source of that. Yeah. So this, and then also beyond that, the environmental reasons for it, there'd be a very serious economic reason to, to build using that. Especially if you're talking about $150,000 for a 700 square foot home. It's a very low cost per square it's foot. compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And affordable. All those things that we're talking about right now. Yeah. No, that's, uh, well, we'll have to have them on the podcast because that's incredibly cool. I, I think this you should. A, absolutely. Yeah. 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 If you're listening, reach out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, is there any more on the Enviro part or do you want to talk about the, the S part of ESG? Yeah, any, any other prop tech that you're excited about, maybe as an investor or just on the horizon for the industry? Well, I mean, we look at companies that do sort of better payment systems, better entry, exit, just providing a better experience for a tenant and, and looking at technology that goes with that. You know, we looked at mass timber quite a bit. And I think that there, it's a very compelling case. We just, what we're learning, and because we are learning, you know, there's, there's technology and there's great solutions. And then there's management teams. And this is all about management teams and execution. And they have to go hand in hand together. And, you know, when things are new and they're starting out, there's a stronger chance they're going to fail uh, rather than succeed. And that's where that management team comes in. And if you have founders, and hopefully I don't suffer from this, but there's the, you know, the founder syndrome, as they call it. And, um, so, so what is founder syndrome? Yeah, no, you I'm never not. leave. Okay. <laughs> and you always think you're right. I'm sure my team members can say you. Yeah, we should have one of them on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, there's the yeah. behind the scenes. The follow-up podcast. Lotus yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think we've been careful. And uh, we've taken our time and we see that as a, a long-term investment path for us. Yeah, you've been focused on sort of your apartment side of your assets, but what about the industrial side? Because I think you're, you've got a healthy dose of both of those assets in your portfolio. Is it harder to really I mean, beat the environmental drum with, in, with industrial? Because it's really more you know, four walls and a ceiling, right? Like, rather than much more dynamic operations that you would get in an apartment building. Yeah, and, and we're not, you know, the stuff that we're building that's new isn't quite there. I mean, I think Nexi, that, that's sort of the next system that we're working on is the paneling system. And I think that, you know, at, at a lesser weight, you can get height and you're not creating a footprint. It's just getting made and brought to you it's from an assembly line. So I think that there's some great merit to that. So I don't think we're quite there. Uh, you know, we buy existing industrial value add and it has all sorts of production. I mean, I think we've all gotten into this thing where, you know, anything that's, that involves 
dirty manufacturing or anyhow is a bad word, but it's how it's managed. And I think what we do is we, you know, have buildings here and in, in, in Calgary that are probably have sort of the more, um, in, you know, traditional industrial uses that you would, you know, kind of balk at and say, oh, I don't want to be involved in this. I think what you have to work with is your tenant and uh, figuring out a plan and how they're managing it. How are they getting rid of their residual? How are they keeping it clean? What are they doing? How often are they doing it? When are we getting reporting from them? So we're kind of holding them to a bit of a higher standard. I don't know if we can do more than that. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because yeah. it's not our business. Yeah, you got to follow mm-hmm. the market. If sure. Other, ten- other landlords aren't exactly. doing that. Exactly. Know, tenants go elsewhere. Yeah. What about the S part? I mean, in our previous uh, discussions, you know, we had a quick conversation just about women in real estate. I know it's something you're very passionate about. Maybe just talk us through what it means to you and how you use your experience as entrepreneurs and being a, a leader in our community to encourage more participation and more leadership. So look, we have a, not an ever evolving, but an evolving team because we have young people that move on to something else because we can't offer as much sort of upward growth. So we train some great people and they go to great places and hopefully we can do deals with them later. Yeah. I don't know. That's how real estate works. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, at this particular time, we have more women than we do men in our office. Um, and they come from, you know, diverse cultures. I, I think the S is not just about women. It's about cultural diversity. It's about educational diversity. It's about everything. It, I think it's whatever's different and welcoming it. I mean, one of the things... I know we talked about it, but I think there was, uh, I was on a, a panel with John Love and, and Remco. It might have been the same day, I don't remember. But, you know, one of the things we talked about was sort of, you know, when, it, when we come and speak to these things and we look at the kind of people that are in the audience, you know, when I used to go 30, 30 plus years ago, um, it was a sea of gray and white. And there was just no diversity. Uh, I think I leveraged that, but that's part of my personality. But I don't think it's easy for people to do that if they're coming from a different country. They have experience. They don't have the history of having gone to school with somebody or knowing somebody from somewhere. How do you, how do you, why should one take a chance? And one of the things that I said is, you know, if you have two people who have the same level of experience, education, knowledge, and they're culturally different, whether it's gender, race, whatever the case may be, Give them the chance because in your decision-making, they will bring something different to the table. It's really easy to hire your beta mates. <laughs> A little dick. <laughs> you know, it's good to have differences. And, and I think differences produce better results. And I think they build hopefully more respectful environments in the office. Aaron and I are actually speaking today about the tendency in real estate to just keep on doing things the way you've done them. The innovation isn't necessarily welcomed. Could also be maybe just people of similar backgrounds having similar thoughts and not looking for no one's challenging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and on the on the diversity front, I mean you definitely, you know, when you're when you're on a panel looking at the audience, you'll see a mixture there, but there is generally a an age cutoff where an older generation of real estate is there where you see a very uh, homogenous crowd. Yes. Versus under, I mean, we'll call it 35, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's 40 now. I mean, I, I was kind of saying it was 35 a couple of years ago. And of course, people get older. And yeah. now you're talking about an age group getting into more decision-making roles within the industry, which I think will have a very large 
impact. You know, it's one thing if if you've got uh, you know a, a a demographically diverse population of twenty three year old analysts. Well, they still you know they still need time obviously to mature into their roles. And I think that we're probably are at a pivotal point where that cohort is going to be moving into more senior positions. And I think the industries change. I mean, you look at the industry over the last thirty years and the number of people that were involved, it was not sophisticated in industry. You look at brokerage and what it's become. If you look at underwriting and what it's become. But look at the packages. It used to be a single page. Be like, (laughs) it's $10 million, five cap. I got one from somebody today. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, like that, yeah. (laughs) But they don't usually look like that No, they don't. On the lending side, on the brokerage side, I mean, even probably sure the amount of work you put into reviewing a deal before you decide to put an offer in. I mean, the discipline, the analysis, the depth of work done to put out capital is way more than it used to be. And I think that young people are way smarter than I was at their age. They, they know way more. What is missing is some, from what I can see, is this connection of people and building relationships because I think young people rely so much on social media, a text, an email. And, you know, I always tell people, if you want to talk to me, phone me. Phone me or, leave, or send me a message that you want to talk to me. Because I think that you don't build relationships. I mean, our, our group today, the closing panel, was some of them knew each other. I didn't know any of them except for Mike Bucci, who I'd met years ago when he was at CB. Right? So we didn't know each other. But, you know, we had a phone call. And then we, we said, let's just not follow too much of our format. And, and let's go to the dangerous topics. Let's push it a little bit. And let's just be us. And it, it was great because I think it was more conversational. And that's the closing panels that as a, as a you know, an audience member, I want to see. I wanna, and and yeah. how was it? Was yeah. it that or was yeah. it different? No, it, yeah, I want to I see what looks like moments of, of truth. I'm trying to phrase this delicately, but sometimes you can get a corporate veil that falls mm-hmm. over some panels. Yeah. And so anytime that comes down, I'm very happy. That was one of those panels where… And last was, week was like that. You know, we took the corporate veil off. Yes, yeah. And just but, for context, uh, Shanur was in Toronto last week for NAYA Breakfast talking about entrepreneurship. And it was, yeah, that panel was really enjoyable for me sitting in the audience because everybody just seemed to be, you know, doing, you know, transparent, transparent, honest, heartfelt commentary on trying to build, build a company, build a brand in a tough industry. And also, I think it's super important. If there was ever a more important time, I think we're at a pivotal point in our industry. It's a huge shift what's happening. And there's so many young people out there who've been in this industry for 15 odd years. They haven't seen a bad day. Money has been deployed. It's, capital has been accessible. Capital is not going to be accessible in the same way because the cost of capital has gone up dramatically. Wait, wait, all- what are you talking about? What happened? <laughs> what happened? Did I miss something? <laughs> <laughs> Surely you're not talking about lending. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interest about, rates? Uh, yeah. Did you say interest yeah. rates? I didn't quite say that, but, but generally speaking, yeah. I mean, it's in, but it's also partnership capital, right? What are people's re- return thresholds going to be? You know, do, Rising costs. So, you know, how do you make sense out of a deal now when you underwrite it? And there's a complexity to it. And there's a real, you need to really think about what that risk looks like and how much risk are you willing to take? Are you better off just sitting tight and, and waiting? And, you know, there was a phrase last week that was used. It was like, if banks aren't lending, I'm not buying. We're getting there. It'll get there. <laughs> But well, it'll we'll, be a short period we'll of time. Keep, well, we'll keep lending. Oh, it's, no, just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just at a cost that is market. We, we don't want yeah, yeah. to work for you. We want to yeah. work for us. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there's a shift coming up. And I think having been around for a while and, and, and thinking about leadership, I think, you know, all of us 
have a responsibility to be honest about, you know, what has happened before and how to be more disciplined on moving forward. I mean, I hate to say it, but no can be a very profitable word. Oh, absolutely. You can sleep at night. Well, you could be right 100% of the time if you say no to everything. On this flip side of that <laughs> argument, though. <laughs> oh, I, I still think you've got to get into it. you got to duke it out. you got to get comfortable with your pricing and send it in. And, you know, there's, there is repricing going on. There's all sorts of things going on. And the vendors are probably not happy about it already. And the purchasers don't know what to do. And uh, we're not meeting yet. And we may not meet because there's, yeah. there's a lot of capital that doesn't need to commit an action. Well, let's date stamp it. It's May 17th, right? When we're recording here at the Edmonton Real Estate Forum. Right now, it's the Western Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. And interest rates are up, if you haven't heard. But, you know, Shanur, before we went live, you had mentioned an interesting concept about just the, almost a pivot in the traditional capital structure. I mean, historically, again, you've talked about the last 15 years, anybody that's been in the real estate for those 15 years, it's really been, you know, buy your property at whatever your cap rate is, depending on the asset class, the geography, and, ref- and finance it, right? Get your debt at typically 100, 150 basis points less than your purchase cap rate, right? Mm-hmm. Again, stabilize, you know, cash flowing assets. But that delta of 100, 150 has always been there because interest rates have always kind of decreased technically or theoretically over the long term. Now we're seeing a rapid rise and you're sort of theorizing that there's a, maybe a, tr- a pivot here. There's a transition in the way that we have to look at sort of the capital structure. Well, I think, you know, look, the investment thesis changes and you have to look at how you can make money. We've been using leverage. We've been using revenues that have been going up and it's been a great story right through. And I think now we're sitting down and saying, okay, Rents are kind of peaking out. Prices have been really high. Is there such a thing as cap rates going up? I, you know, I don't know. And so when I look at it and I look at sort of, you know, I look at Toronto and it has been a provider of tremendous capital across the country to folks like us and partnering with them. They're at a stop, so to speak. Is this, every, sorry, on the, on the equity or the debt side? Because I know you raised capital On the equity. Well. Okay. On the equity okay. side, right? The debt is still there. It's just way more expensive. And, and, you know, then you're, you know, running new numbers constantly to see, and then you've got rising costs. So you're, you're sort of sitting back and going, I don't want to do a deal where I push the envelope too much and it blows up in four years. You know, I'm better off sitting still and being disciplined because that's, that's what's been our success. And then I look back and I think, wow, you know, when we started or when I started, my capital came from uh, high net worth individuals or family offices. And, and then we, we expanded that capital stack to private equity, institutional capital, capital marks capital. So we had sort of, you know, this bandwidth that we drew upon and we took our type of investment, whether it was opportunistic, value add, legacy, and we matched the risk with the capital. And it's worked really well for us. And, you know, we been a high percentage of it and it, the, the, those, those partnerships have worked really well. Well, that shifts. I think that that scaled capital that was available is there, but it wants to be more opportunistic because he feels things need to be repriced. And out east, that's happening. But, you know, Western Canada seems to always behave differently. And I think in this case, Alberta is going to behave really differently because 
they are going to be part of the supply side solution as it relates to wheat, as it relates to oil and gas, right? But if I look at, you know, Vancouver, it has always behaved uniquely. There is a lot of passive capital there and it doesn't mind earning low returns. And if you look at Vancouver over 40 years, it's never gone down, ever. Not the kind of turns you've seen in Toronto or Montreal. So it behaves so differently. And the capital that lives there in some ways has played, but it's had to compete with, with the capital from Toronto. And it's stepped back a little bit because it hasn't been as aggressive and it can't cut the more interesting deals we've been able to. And I think there's probably an opportunity for them at this point. But I think it's just early still. You know, all of this started a couple of months ago. And in the last three weeks, we're seeing some intensity in it. A lot of people are kind of wait and see mode. Not that they're out of the market. No. But they're also not in the market. You know, yeah. they, they just want to kind of see some deals. down for a lot, of, yeah. a lot of groups these yeah. days. Yeah. Which makes sense because, I mean, we've, we've had this conversation before, but, you know, you talked about the depth of review and analysis you have to go through. A lot of that is projections and yeah. assumptions. And when you can't be confident in your projections or assumptions, it makes it really hard to come to a final decision. So we were chasing an upward market. We're chasing a downward market. And that'll be tough for people to retrain because, I mean, you're talking about not having to stretch, you know, stretch your underwriting and assumptions to make money in a deal. But people that did do that in the last 15 years, a lot of time just a rising market patched over some decisions that maybe were a little on the dicier side. And when you get rewarded for it, you tend to you know, encourage more of that behavior. This market's not going to reward that behavior in the same way. No, it's not. So, Sharon, we talked about you know, taking the corporate veil down. So I'm hoping that you answer this question with that in mind. Where are the opportunities? Like, where are you? What what rocks are you peeking under? Saying, "Oh yeah, there's there's maybe a an arbitrage potential." I think there's still opportunity in the U.S. markets. I think that multifamily market still is very very strong and will continue to be. I I think housing across this country is an opportunity. You just have to have to be a bit patient about how it comes about. And I think that we have no choice given our immigration numbers, our conversation around affordability. In, in our environment, in the bank environment, it's, it's, it is all about the missing middle, workforce housing. We just don't have it, right? So I think that these kind of opportunities are there, but I think they need the cooperation of government. And I think the cooperation of federal and provincial government is, is more there, but I think it's the civic governments that are really challenging right now. And I hope there's a shift. You were just doing it on the panel, and I, I'll just quote somebody and I'll let you keep going, but just to drive it home. In Edmonton, someone had said that they can get from basically land purchase to shovel in the ground in about eight to nine months. Yeah. And they made the joke that they were talking to a, to a, to a <laughs> colleague, a developer in BC, and they said, oh yeah, I'm going to do it really quick. I'm going to be in the ground right away. Two to three years. Yeah, which is like amazing. Right. right. So it just, it can't work that way. We've got to change it. And I, I think that there's going to be change. I also think that, you know, costs will go down because if you have this kind of rapid inflation, people put pencils down on their projects. They can afford to just hold land and just wait it out. And the minute that happens, construction starts seeing, like, you know, we've already seen some movement in, in timber prices and stuff like that. It's fluctuating quite a bit. But I think, you know, it'd be great if 26 million people in Shanghai get back to work some sort of resolution, though I don't believe there is one at the war. I think it continues, unfortunately. You know, I think the supply side solutions that we thought would take lesser time are not going to take, going to take longer. So there's some heavy lifting to do coming up. 
Well, from your office in Vancouver, can you still see all the, the container ships sitting in the harbor waiting to be unloaded? I can see them from my home. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, there you go. They're there. Yeah. No, it's, it's certainly taking longer to do everything. And then there's just this whole notion of where are all the people? There's so many jobs. Where are all the people? I still haven't, I can't answer the question. I don't know where everybody is. But yes, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know where they are. I have no idea. It's like, <laughs> they were there before, two years ago. What happened to them? And what's the secret to not needing to work? And, uh, and I think it's called, let me invest school. in Bitcoin and the stock market. And all of a sudden, that might look a little different right now. Yeah. After this week, <laughs> you'll see a flood of applications. Uh. <laughs> I do think it has to change. People do have to work. There's a, there's a lot of people in terms of the age bandwidth, you know, that, that have availability. I just don't know if they've moved. Uh, and migrated to smaller cities to for affordability reasons. And that's why we've lost them. I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting to see. But, you know, I have three or four positions right now. We can't fill them. Hmm. We just can't. There's, you know, it's the bandwidth of availability is Zippo. Yeah, I've, I spoke with a few developers out in uh, Vancouver. And they talked about their construction sites. Uh, you know, jobs that paid a hundred grand last year. Now they're paying people 180 just because they cannot afford to lose them in the middle of a project. Yeah which is an enormous cost escalation. Yeah. Labor costs have gone up dramatically. So it's just, you kind of feel like you're in this pressure cooker right now. Everything is, it's so much compression. And when you dance in that, you get compressed. But if you just say, I'm going to stop for a bit and hang out and just see what happens, it's okay. Take a break. (laughs) (laughs) Could you see uh, rents, rents in a lot of markets across the country are going up. Could you see apartment rents in Vancouver going any higher, even though it seems inconceivable a little bit given this most expensive market out there? Is there room for them to grow and, uh, you know, help offset some of these headwinds? The only way you can have more rents and higher rents is if you look at wages. It's all about the wages. Because in Vancouver, the average person spends 75% of their income on accommodation. That's crazy. I, that is you, my mind. Well, and, it doesn't, and, the federal and, government says you should spend 30%, something like yeah, that, right? So, so there's a stress that people have. And you feel that stress in the community. I, was just, I think I said that today. I said, you know, people in Alberta seem happier because they spend 20 to 25% of their income on accommodation and they can do a lot of things other than that. But there's, just, there's a pressure cooker in Vancouver. And I think that, that, that whistle has to blow somewhere. Well, especially just relative to, the, to, to your entire earnings is so enormous. Any rent increases are really felt. I've heard the argument, you know, for industrial tenants that, you know, yes, rents have gone up in a lot of markets, but rent is not actually a huge line item on many operating companies' businesses. So there's sure. not as felt. But if, you're, if your well, line item in your, in your household budget is 75%, you feel that yeah, extra feel $50, 50 cents per square foot rent. Yeah. Yeah, it's enormous. So, you know, you end up, younger people don't mind living in smaller spaces and they want amenities so they can be outside more. You know, we deal with a tenant profile of people who want to be at home and they want more space and they're getting more for for their bank for their buck. And it, you know, the building may not look brand new from the outside, but what they have and they're living in has all the amenities and it looks like a condo. Yeah, you know, we want to build, we, we're about communities and, and building or, or remodeling for livability. So people feel good about where they're at. Shanor, I think we are out of time today, but I do appreciate you sharing your insights. I mean, it sounds like there still is a lot of wait and see. That will be a takeaway from this conversation, which hopefully leads to us meeting again to, talk about how interesting the rest of 2022 has been at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it, as we said earlier, you know, wait and see can be profitable. No can be profitable. Maybe that is the state of the market right now. So 
Thanks to the Real Estate Forums, of course, uh, putting this together, the conference, our, our time with Shanor. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Shanor. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.